Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Welcome to the Voices in Leadership. This is a series that focuses on science and leadership to create positive change in public health. I am Betty Johnson and I have the privilege to direct this program and to introduce today's guests. Tessa Jowell served as a labor member of British Parliament from 1992 to 2015. She was then appointed to the House of Lords, assuming the title of Baroness, though she prefers to be called Tessa. Respected for her strong character and principles, Tessa has a true passion for public health, education, and equality. She has held numerous cabinet positions. These include Minister of State for Public Health, Minister of State for Employment, Welfare to Work, and Equal Opportunities, and Secretary of State for Culture, Media, and Sport. Tessa established the National Early Nurturing Program, Sure Start, and also initiated and managed the winning bid for the London 2012 Olympics and Paralympics and led the development of this project for eight years. Prior to becoming a member of Parliament, Tessa's career included experience in public service as a mental health practitioner, senior manager, public service reform expert, and social policy analyst. Tessa currently serves on the advisory board of the Harvard Ministerial Leadership Program, a joint initiative of the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Tessa is also a Mitchell Senior Leadership Fellow here at the school. Before I turn this session over to today's interviewer, Professor Robert Blinden, Senior Associate Dean for Policy Translation and Leadership Development here at the school. Please join me as we welcome Baroness Tessa Jowell to the, <laughs> to the, leadership, to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, hi, Bob Lennon. Uh, we've agreed we're going to start a little bit differently than some of the other programs. That is, there are questions that young people are asking actually uh, across the world, across this country, uh, in the UK, uh, about if I am very mission-oriented and the political environment in my country changes, it goes in a direction that is not where I would go. How do I lead? How do I live my life? How do I get up in the morning sure that I can make a difference uh, with that? And without getting into one political change here in the UK or not, uh, this is a real uh, issue. Those of us who've had a chance to spend time with Tessa uh, are just struck by one of the most mission-oriented uh, personal sense. So rather than how did I do policy in this and we'll get into that, is uh, really because she's had this issue. She's been a national and world leader in a world where for many of the years the government wasn't necessarily on her side. And so I just thought she would start helping people think about how she thought about getting up in the morning if the newspaper doesn't lead with the concern that you would have had. Okay, so uh, thank you very much, Bob. Thank you, Betty. And uh, thank you all for having hosted me here for the last two months. Um, there is always something to be done. There is always something to be changed. 
and there are always we all have the resources um, to together or individually to be part of that change. So I think that's where we start. I mean, if you are a mission-led person, let alone a mission-led leader, a young person starting out, um, and you have this sense inside you that uh, there are things in the world that you want to be part of changing. I mean, let me just say this. It's an uncomfortable way to be made. And uh, there are much easier uh, people to live with, to have as your parents and your friends and people who are mission driven. Um, but actually, it brings a sense of satisfaction, a sense of fulfillment and a sense of renewed challenge like nothing else I, um, I think I, I can describe. So it may be that young people in this country, young people in this school, um, and in the UK after we voted very particularly to leave the European Union, which so many young people felt was somehow a denial of something that they'd always assumed about their country and about themselves, their identity. Because uh, the majority, uh, by and large, the Brexit majority came from people um, who were older. But that doesn't mean that there is nothing uh, to be done any more than it means now in this country um, that uh, you have President-elect Trump whose values and approach uh, may be misaligned with the values and approach of many of the uh, liberal outward-looking um, young people of this country. You know, do not for one moment think that you have to go away for four years or eight years uh, and withdraw from the possibility of change in the, the public world. And <clears throat> I've thought about this um, a lot over my, I've been an elected representative for 38 years and of those 13 were in government and 23 were in parliament. Um, but if you have strong values which are connected to a sense of mission uh, to change, then uh, you decide really where you're going to direct that energy. And um, since I, I, in my early days in Parliament when we were in opposition, um, my mission for change was very much directed at um, highlighting the conditions that particularly poor, frail, elderly people were subjected to when they tried to get into hospital. Um, before that, when I was leading a big national cha public service change program about um, how is it that you improve the quality of care for very frail elderly people living in institutions, um, homes for elderly people, hostels for people with mental health difficulties or with learning um, difficulties. But how do you improve the quality of care available to them, but without spending any more money? Well, there's one way uh, that is surefire in yielding results in doing that. You go and stay in those hostels, you go and stay in those residential homes. You, it's not like being 85 
and uh, confused and very frail. But you can understand a little bit about the, the pattern of service, about the unrealized potential that exists um, in those services. One of the things I discovered, I'll tell you very quickly, is um, I was staying overnight, it was a bitterly cold winter night, um, in an inner city part of Birmingham where I was conducting this work. And uh, there were a couple of uh, who have severe learning difficulties had come back to the hostel having just got married. They were having dinner and then uh, somebody from the hostel went home with them in order to change some light bulbs. And the head of the hostel said to me at the end of the evening, please don't tell them at headquarters that this is what we do because we're not allowed to. So what you can do is to kind of unpick all the blockages to simple humanity and the very highest standards of human professional care being delivered to people who may be very silent advocates on their own behalf. So there is always a mission. I mean, next, um, uh, I am a great supporter of an organization called Help Refugees, a new startup which has been very widely um, acclaimed. It's winning awards for the work that it's doing with unaccompanied children <coughs> in the jungle camp in Calais and also um, in uh, setting up early learning centers in some of the Greek refugee camps. I have to declare an interest in that um, our daughter is um, one of the core members of the small team that does this extraordinary work. Um, but I hope that when I go back, having founded Sure Start, I can help them uh, by going down to the camps in Greece, set up Sure Start spaces for children who are, are being denied all the kind of normal life of very early childhood. So we need one minute. Sure start. How you sure, sure got it going, Christ. How I got it get yeah, yes. one minute on sure start. Um, it won't be one minute, but I thought no, we that's would right. <laughs> give that and move on. <laughs> sure start was very much born of my own experience together with um, uh, David Blunkett, who was the education secretary at the time, our passion about the importance of early childhood and new mothers having the confidence to be their baby's first teachers. And in a way, um, so much of the research about early um, neurophysical development um, has confirmed what for us was a hunch based on our own experience and on uh, theories um, of attachment. So uh, we set about uh, designing and setting up um, a program which would become a national program to enable uh, often very vulnerable mothers whose own mothers may never have told them that they were extraordinary, that they loved them, and that they, these were not young women who'd grown up with a sense of their own internal value, who didn't have lots of flowers and cards and presents when their babies were born uh, and being told as they struggled with breastfeeding that they were doing so well and that their babies were beautiful. And so the purpose of Sure Start was really to try and create a program that would reach some of the poorest children 
and enrich these, help enrich these relationships between their mothers and these uh, little babies. And uh, Sure Start became a national program. It was very little understood to begin with. And I was just telling Bob earlier that I gave an interview to um, a, 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 a research magazine a few years after Sure Start was securely established. And the uh, chapter, um, my, my interview, was entitled, They Don't Talk About Love in Government. And the fact is, that this was about building the strength of love, the bonds between mothers and their new babies, which are the prerequisite for those babies growing up to be uh, functioning, healthy, and achieving children, and optimistic, and competent, and contributing adults. And uh, against all the, I don't want you to get the idea that this is all soft-edged and, um, you know, all conducted uh, in uh, a sort of rosy glow. Mission-led leadership like this, which combines rigorous design, clarity about purpose, with this sense of internal mission, is in my view just about the most uncomfortable and personally demanding form of leadership but I believe it's the best and the most effective. And I think it's also the kind of leadership that young people, uh, and particularly those young people who feel disconnected from what has become the political mainstream, thrive in. So, so one is, is just somebody studies government. That wasn't that easy to get a government to, to approach. No, it, it, it wasn't easy. The human feeling side of this just leads me a little, Yeah. how am I going to get that bureaucracy to have your passion? Yeah, and um, what I was, I had two patrons for this program, um, both of whom were, were very powerful in government. One was uh, uh, David Blunkett, who became Education Secretary, um, and the other Gordon Brown, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And Gordon uh, was a really magnificent sponsor, and David was a wonderful partner. And here's the other point, you never ever effect this change on your own. And uh, you cannot lead this kind of uh, far-reaching change unless people want to work with you and be part of that process. And uh, I've got very little time for um, egomaniacal leadership because it tends to be highly visible and very noisy for a short period of time and uh, doesn't achieve that much. It's highly narcissistic and its effects then fade away. And I think, again, going back to your mission for young people, Bob, that this sense of becoming part of a movement um, which is clear about its purpose and that you know you have internal um, capability, resources, determination to contribute um, will mean that change does happen. And that's why we can be optimistic. So you took this internationally though, right? We moved from the UK uh, to actually other countries? Well, I, I hope so. It's in its very yeah. early infancy. Um, you know, we are, and my daughter and her team, they're at the point of raising the money. 
um, identifying the potential volunteers. There are therapists, you know, some really extraordinary people um, building on their work, working in the camps. But of course, um, in many of these camps, you know, people who've left their conflict-ridden countries, mostly Syria, some Afghanistan, you know, they they're now described as refugees, but they're also teachers and nurses and early uh, early years workers and doctors, and they can contribute um, to this too, and just give something, and it's just something, to these children whose lives otherwise will be forever scarred by the fact that they were denied the um, the opportunities of their very early childhood. So what was, uh, let's do the, the best and the worst of your life in government. So what was sort of the best <laughs> moments? You finally, our minister will hold probably the Olympics to the end, uh, but the, the best achievement and how did you get it done? And then one when you occasionally have too many glasses of diet soda, <laughs> uh, you look back and say, wow, I wish this had gone yes. somehow differently. Well, yes, that's certainly true. Um, there are plenty of those. We've got plenty of time for those, Bob. Um, but I, I think probably my, one of my best periods in government, and we'll talk about we'll yeah. talk about the Olympics yes. because that was we'll do that uh, next. Yeah, right. that yeah. that was extraordinary. But I think it was going. It was the three or four days after the election in 1997, um, when in the UK there was a sense of extraordinary optimism. And it was a bit like the opening ceremony of the day after the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games, but it just went on and on and on. Um, that the country wanted a different kind of government, wanted a government that was open, wanted a government that was com committed in a progressive way to um, equality, to uh, creating opportunities, regenerating you know, time-decayed infrastructure and uh, had a sense of purpose to bring the country together. And so that was exciting. And going in to the Department of Health as the first ever Minister for Public Health was quite heady. And uh, because the civil service was so excited about this, they had not been allowed in the previous 13 years of Tory government to talk about inequality or health inequalities. Well, excuse me, you know, <laughs> how do you begin to understand why, you know, if you're on a subsistence wage, you're more likely to get sick and die earlier than um, anybody in this room? And so we talked, we sang, we're, everything we did was to talk about how we were going to tackle health inequality. I um, immediately started focusing on uh, where we could get the quickest gains, where preventable deaths uh, were most prevalent. And of course, early deaths from heart disease and cancer, more likely if you were poor and uh, you know, ev everything that went with poverty. Um, you know, undereducated, uh, poor diet, probably a smoker, not exercising, you know, all the things that mean that health inequality becomes so intractable. So I think that was very exciting. And in those early days, um, we started planning Sure Start. And Sure Start, if you like, preventable death was to mitigate 
the, uh, the circumstances of people who were already on a course where they risked becoming um, a statistic demonstrating once again the scale of health inequality. Um, Shawstart was basically saying, um, we are not going to live as a country with uh, a, the situation where by the time children are three, so many of their subsequent life chances, the course of their lives, are already mapped by virtue of the experience of the first thousand days of their lives. And I always used to say about Shawstart, as I was reminded recently by um, Naomi Eisenstadt, who was the brilliant chief executive who basically made um, the whole thing um, happen. And she reminded me that I always said to her, um, Naomi, I always want to be able to smell the babies. And the point being that so many programs become reduced to ticking the boxes but actually, you've got to have the grit under your fingernails. You've got to be able to smell what the program likes. And going back to my residential homes, you walk into a home where elderly people are being cared for and you smell urine and you think, I would not want my mother uh, to be cared for here. So why would you want anybody else's mother to be cared for here? Because the other great um, motivator of my work I think throughout my life has been Richard Titmus, who was a great um, thinker, academic at the London School of Economics where I am now, um, who always used to say services only for the poor are poor services. Now think about that and just apply it to every service that you're ever responsible for developing and designing. Would I use this? Would my friends use it? And if not, it's not something that you should continue to plan in the way you are. And people will always try to talk you out of it. And, uh, but remember, services only for the poor are always poor services. Uh, so uh, one other issue just to get this developed further. Uh, so for the program for new ministers that we have, we had a session one night, which I actually thought, would work very poorly. We had Governor Dukakis uh, from Massachusetts, presidential candidate, and Tessa and I thought that the differences would be too great for them to discuss. To the surprise of everybody in the audience, they both went exactly the same place, which was you can't be on the top if you don't have life experience in the programs. Both of them spent a lot of their times visiting programs, being with uh, uh, People, she won't uh, tell you. Headline says in Africa, uh, living in hut uh, uh, with recipients. Uh, others are are living at the ministerial mansion somewhere, uh, reading data and statistics. So, Governor Dukakis was talking about the same thing: uh, walking around, staying in mental institutions, watching the people, watching the services, and this struck this whole audience, all of whom believed. Once you reach that level, you never had to worry about that. So I wanted Tessa to have one more shot about her view of leading from the top requires these human experiences. Well, I'm used to people um, when I talk to them about this, and particularly how you begin to um, reconcile a country divided by Brexit, just as this country is divided by the most recent election. And you've actually got to start 
you know, all the best policy carries, you could, all the best policy you can tell through stories of the people whose lives it will affect. And if you can't do that, you've got to wonder whether humanity and your own investment in the human impact is going to be. And so there are a number of sort of absolute rules about this. You know, first of all, you have got to be out there. You have got to tolerate the discomfort, and particularly in Africa and India, where I've um, worked, you know, quite a bit. I wouldn't, you know, quite a bit. Um, I have had the experience of pushing myself right to the edge of my um, ability to tolerate physical discomfort. Um, you know, I'm not a Hindi speaker, and all the children I work with there speak Hindi. Um, the, the sense that I don't know the answers to uh, the predicaments that um, many of these children and young people are facing. And so uh, the, in developing this idea of mission-led uh, leadership, there are no shortcuts to doing it properly in a way that delivers different kinds of policy uh, outcomes. And data is very important, and rigor in service design is very important. But absolutely vital is the sense that you know the people who are going to be affected by this. You have had conversations with, and you've got to know the people uh, whose needs and own lives prompt you to make the proposal for this particular policy. I carried all the years I was doing Short Start the pictures of women in my head um, with their tiny babies who were struggling. And uh, that was what inspired me. And uh, so it's not easy. It is not soft-edged. There are no shortcuts. Don't ever stand up as the great leaders you will become and make a speech uh, with stories that somebody else has given you to tell because they will lack authenticity. But when you can talk about how it really is in government to your ministerial colleagues who may not quite know as well how it really is, you have a degree of authority and you have a degree, and your proposals have a degree of integrity that makes them much, much harder to set aside. So we have a few minutes, and there's a world audience emailing me saying, are you going to ask her about the Olympics or not? <laughs> uh, so in a few minutes, there has to be absolute lessons from not only taking it on, but trying to make it work. So the UK five years later says, this really has been incredibly important for this country, and we've gotten something out of it. So what are your advice for the next people here who are going to be running Olympics? Who are going to be running Olympics yeah. or doing anything yes. on that kind of scale, yeah. which has that power uh, to transform? Um, I think my, I would say this, be very clear why you're doing it. Um, remember, uh, to build, uh, we, we talk a lot in class about uh, team building, uh, build your team and remember that success is not a zero-sum game. Remember Harry Truman who said it's remarkable what a small group of people can achieve together if they don't mind who gets the credit. 
So be absolutely clear why. We were clear we wanted to regenerate East London, transform a generation of young people through sport, and then build your team and build the solidity and solidarity of your team in pursuit of a shared vision. And you as the leader have to be, go, uh, have to be the one who's prepared uh, when necessary to go out there and take the wax. And I'll tell you, when we were doing the Olympics, I took plenty of wax <laughs> about, the, you know, the, 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 the media have three, three headlines um, which are programmed into their computer. One is this whole thing is running out of control um, and the taxpayer's going to have to spend more. The second, the International Com Olympic Committee, or whoever the sponsoring body is, um, is holding crisis talks with the organizers. <laughs> they see this as a doomed project. And the third is the third is all the people, all the people leading this are completely useless and ought to be fired. So you have, you have to be able to withstand all that because what keeps you going are the kids you know who want to be inspired by the sporting opportunities that come, the athletes who just want the chance to compete in an Olympics at home. And something that's much more difficult to communicate is just the belief that this is going to do something extraordinary to our country. So we have to close uh, one line on my part. Everybody keeping your minds, this is what a sense of mission means. Uh, <laughs> this is exactly it. This is a life which puts mission as part of it and things happen, including in environments where either the media is not very supportive or the political environment of that day. But this is someone who's done absolutely something extraordinary, but it's not always in an ideal environment. Uh, but the sense of mission just is powerful and that's what the next generation here has to take out of this. Thank you very, very much. Pleasure, Bob, thank you. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.